Well, with 2520700 dollars, Ken Jennings reigns as the all-time Jeopardy champion. He made 74 consecutive appearances on that show. He visited 900 different categories. He answered 2,693 questions correctly. That's a lot of questions and a lot of answers. This morning, you and I enter a passage filled with both. Many questions and many answers. Religious leaders launch questions at our Lord, and his profound answers display his wisdom. We'll learn this morning three compelling answers to important life questions. The topics concern authority and belief and priority. To give you my three points quite simply, give yourself to God, read your Bible, and love God and others. Now, I'll give you a moment to regain your footing from that earth-shaking revelation. (laughs) I assume you probably knew that. I assume unbelievers know that about us. But even though we know those things, there are two twists to them this morning. First is the audience. Jesus speaks the most basic Bible truths to the most religious of people. The most intelligent, seemingly the most committed, evidently the most holy. Did you catch that? Jesus believed that the religious elite, those spiritually strong, they needed basic Bible truths. Secondly, I want you to see the wisdom in this. When Jesus speaks, jaws drop. Reactions we will see use words like astonished and amazed. That describes the reaction of people to his teaching. Again, if we put this in terms of jeopardy, Jesus would ring in and give an answer. It would not be the one they're looking for. The judges would confer and be approved because it's even better. That's the level on which he speaks. With each answer, it's as though Jesus is taking a diamond and slowly turning it and showing it the beauty and the depth and the richness of the Word of God. He's teaching us old truths. Yes, we know these things, but he teaches them in in fresh and vibrant ways. This morning, we pick up in Matthew chapter 22, verse 15. We are waist deep in a thick swamp of tension. Religious leaders, they do not believe that Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus, on his part, has been denouncing, denouncing them for their faithlessness in leadership. Through three parables recently, he's indicted these Jewish religious leaders for their disobedience to God. Where do you hear him in chapter 23? His opponents erupt in a fury. To quote old Ahab, to the last I grapple with thee, from hell's heart I stab at thee, for hate's sake I spit my last breath at thee. There's a hatred that hung in the air you could taste. That's how they felt about our Lord. 
And otherwise, enemies, there are three groups this morning that unite in a common hatred of Jesus. The Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Herodians. Each of them will take their turn cornering Christ, throwing a hook, attempting a jab. But let's begin with the first question this morning. Is it right to give taxes to Caesar? Verse 15, this is a question about authority. Then the Pharisees went and plotted together how they might test Jesus and what he said. And they sent their disciples to him, along with the Herodians, saying, Teacher, we know that you are truthful, and teach the way of God in truth, and defer to no one, for you are not partial to any. Tell us then, what do you think? Is it lawful to give a poll tax to Caesar or not? But Jesus perceived their malice and said, Why are you testing me, you hypocrites? Show me the coin used for the poll tax. And they brought him a denarius. And he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. Then he said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And hearing this, they were amazed, and leaving him, they went away. Well, in in this first Q&A, question and answer, it's the Pharisees and the Herodians teaming up against Jesus. Really, apart from this dislike of the Lord, they had little in common. Just consider some of the contrasts for a moment. The the Pharisees were the religious Jews of the day. They were advocates of religious law, advocates of moral conduct. Well, the Herodians would be more political. They're going to be less religious, morally loose even. The Pharisees cared about the law of God. The Herodians cared about the law of Caesar. The Pharisees were committed to the nation of Israel. The Herodians were committed to the Roman Empire. This delegation betrayed a dark motive. You heard Jesus spot it. Began with their very first words. They begin nice enough, don't they? Teacher, we know that you're truthful and teach the way of God. You're not partial to any. Jesus replies, what fine gentlemen, allow me to buy you lunch. He does not reply that way. He perceived their malice and asks them, why are you testing me? He called them hypocrites. Luke's gospel records the same account. Luke says he detected their trickery. Praise God that he sent us a Savior with a backbone, a man who stood his ground and could see through lies. And what they said was true enough about Jesus. You can reread their statement, but it's nothing but flattery. Proverbs 26, verse 28, a lying tongue hates those it crushes, and a flattering mouth works ruin. You see, their attempt is to disarm Jesus and then attack him. If they can somehow manage to get him to lower down his shield, they can fire their arrow. Here's the million-dollar question. Is it lawful to give a poll tax to Caesar or not? Rome, the occupiers of Palestine at the time of Jesus, Rome required an annual poll tax. Now, some of you may think the United States is pretty good at taxing. Rome isn't bad either. 
Every dollar of that tax went to the emperor's treasury. And remember the two groups that are involved here. You have the Pharisees on one hand and the Herodians on the other. These Pharisees, they saw taxation as borderline sacrilegious. It's enslaving. Many viewed this as offensive. All it does is symbolize their domination over us. As I give them this money back, it shows that that they own me and I have to pay. Certainly one thing to kiss the ring, it's quite another to open up your wallet. You see, for them, the religious Pharisees, this denarius was more than just a coin. It bore the image of a man trying to be God. The front of the coin read Tiberius Caesar Augustus, son of the divine Augustus. The back was worse. Chief, priest, pontiff, maxim. The Jew could very well make the case that they're shelling out money to some other religion. Well, the Herodians saw this as obedience. Remember, the Herodians are pro-Rome, pro-Herod. For them, this is power on display. They would chant, support the Romans. And if you notice how this question is asked, it's asked in what is called a binary way. There's one of two answers that Jesus could give. It's either a yes or a no. And this is meant to divide and to get the Lord in a world of trouble. If he answers yes, pay taxes to Caesar, what happens then? Well, he joins the Romans in their program. He alienates the Jews. But if he answers no, no, it is not lawful to pay taxes to Caesar. That's going to infuriate the Herodians to say nothing of how Rome might respond to that. Jesus answers, show me the coin used for the poll tax. This is so good. And as they place the coin in the palm of Jesus, they effectively give him the ammunition he needs to win this argument. Whose likeness and inscription is this? Caesar's. Then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and render to God the things that are God's. He is saying that taxes belong to Caesar. And Caesar has a legitimate role in your life. After all, God raised up Caesar. Romans chapter 13, verse 1. Every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. That means that God holds all authority. And God has decided to delegate some authority to Caesar. This means then as well that Caesar has a limited authority. Caesar does not have unlimited authority, and he does not have final authority. But don't miss the bigger point here. This isn't about government. This is about God. You see, the Roman coin, it bore the image of Caesar. That's fine. The coin belongs to him. But you bear the image of God. You belong to God. God alone has a claim on your life. Brett Laird says it this way, Caesar can legitimately lay a claim to people's money, but only God can lay claim to people themselves. 
You see, you and I belong to God. We must render ourselves to God. And if Caesar oversteps that limited or delegated authority that God has given him, if he would somehow veer out of his lane into the lane of someone else's authority, in the words of Peter, we must obey God rather than men. But Jesus avoids their trap, doesn't he? He avoids their trap and leaves them, quote, amazed. They can't believe this answer. In fact, you and I can take what he says and be encouraged by it. He has laid a claim on us. It's our first point this morning. Give yourself to God. Give yourself to God. You belong to him. You're made in his image. And more than this, you and I, we've been abundantly blessed to live in the nation in which we've lived. The Declaration of Independence has laid out defining ideas for our country. The Constitution stands at the, as the highest level. It's the highest law in the land. In fact, the Constitution supersedes all the Caesars, though we can't just disavow them. But we also realize that we do not live with a perfect government. We do not live with a Christian government. And that means that there's going to be people who make decisions that are going to err. People will make decisions that are sin. People may intrude on the authority that God has delegated elsewhere. People may require disobedience to God, or they may restrict our obedience to God. They may demand worship or prevent worship. Psalm 29, verse 2, ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. That's our task. Worship the Lord in holy array. That's our command. So, what do I ascribe to God, and what do I give to Caesar? Be a Berean. Be a Berean. You know of the Bereans, right? Acts chapter 17, Paul and Silas, they're on a missionary journey. They're going through a town called Berea. Quote, the Bereans received their word with great eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see whether these things were so. <laughs> they researched Paul. Paul. They were double-checking what Paul the Apostle wrote, the miracle-working Apostle Paul. Would you and I do less when Caesar tells us to do things? Most times there'll be no problem. But we must be Bereans and check, check the word. We, we want to obey God. With all diligence at all times, we will be able to do what Jesus has ascribed, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and the things to God that are God's. Well, the next question this morning is one about belief. That was a question about authority. And again, we know that the backdrop to this is a division, meddling. These opponents of Jesus are up to no good. Verse 23, on that same day, some Sadducees, who say there's no resurrection, they came to Jesus and questioned him, asking, Teacher, Moses said if a man dies having no children, his brother as next of kin shall marry his wife and raise up children for his brother. Now there were seven brothers with us, and the first married and died, and having no children left his brother, left his wife to his brother. So also the second and the third down to the seventh. Last of all, the woman died. In the resurrection, therefore, whose wife of the seven will she be? For they had all married her. 
But Jesus answered and said to them, You are mistaken, not understanding the Scriptures nor the power of God. For in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. But regarding the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was spoken to you by God? I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. When the crowds heard this, they were astonished at his teaching. Well, now we have the Sadducees on scene. The Sadducees arrive. These are the upper class, the aristocrats. The Sadducees, we might call the religious liberals of the day. Now, they had beliefs about God, so did the Pharisees, but they had more selective beliefs about God. For example, in verse 23, they say there's no resurrection. Nothing on the other side, no eternity. The Sadducees held to the first five books of the Old Testament, the Law of Moses. And Paul would later use their beliefs to drive a wedge between them and the Pharisees. Acts records the birth of the church. Paul's taking heat. For the Sadducees say there is no resurrection, nor an angel, nor a spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. Definitely differences in belief. But again, what could unite these two different groups together against Jesus? A shared hatred. Stoked long enough, hate can do crazy things to people. In our account here, they come up with a scenario that borders on the ridiculous. They've created a story in which a woman has seven husbands. In verse 24, they're quoting Deuteronomy 25. That's accurate. Moses gave something called the law of the Leverite. And again, Moses is giving these laws so the nation of Israel knows how they can live in a right relationship with God. If a husband died without leaving a male heir, his unmarried brother would marry his widow. The purpose was to preserve the family line, preserve the tribe, and the inheritance. You might remember this practice back from our message on Judah. We were working our way through Genesis a few weeks ago, and this was the custom of of the time. Judah had a son named Ur. He died. His second oldest brother, Onan, he took his widow as his wife. Now, that law is the backdrop for the passage, but things get ridiculous. I just want you to think about this for a moment. Think about what had to work for this scenario to happen. Jack dies, leaving Jill a widow. Jack has to have six younger brothers. All of them are single, and none have children. Jill marries brother number two, and he dies. Jill marries brother number three, and he dies, and brother number four, and he dies, and brother number five, and he dies, and brother number six, and he dies. Does it not seem unremarkably unwise to marry Jill? (laughs) The Sadducees then ask their trump question. This is the trump card right here. In the resurrection, Jesus, therefore, whose wife of the seven will she be? For they had all married her. 
And Jesus answered and said to them, you are mistaken, not understanding the scriptures nor the power of God. Now I want you to note how Jesus used the word understanding here. Because these Sadducees, they know and they comprehend information. They have the data. They have the facts. They certainly understood, at least in one sense, the scriptures and the power of God. But not fully and not completely because they did not bow the knee to Jesus. These people do not have an intellectual problem. They have a moral problem, a spiritual problem. You and I have seen this, perhaps as we interact with people in society. People will latch on to some speculation or some Bible difficulty and and cling to that. They're going to carry about some issue that's hard to interpret from the Bible. And then anytime we try to talk to them, they'll deflect us using this speculation. We might approach them, hey, can I tell you about God's love in the Bible? Oh, no, no, you can't tell me about that because Jonah's in the Bible and there's no way Jonah could have survived for three days in the belly of a fish. That's what's happening here and Jesus calls them on it. What's the point? Point number two, read your Bible. Untangle these knots of wrong understanding and weak application. Jesus tells them, look, guys, there is no marriage in heaven. To their question, Jill is the wife of none of them. It's very interesting how he describes relationships in heaven. He gives us a picture of what that will be like. He speaks about how angels relate to one another. Note, Jesus does not say that we will be angels in heaven. We never become angels. They are a different classification of being. We will always be human beings made in the image of God, though glorified and made perfect in heaven. But as they interact in terms of their relationships, in terms of their worship and so on, Jesus points to that. Secondly, he he tells them to behold the power of God. God raises the dead. Jesus is playing essentially a, a game from their own book. Now, our Lord can spar with any weapon. He's quoting from the Pentateuch. Remember, these guys were only about the first five books of the Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. And they're pulling from Deuteronomy. Jesus will pull from Exodus. Exodus chapter 3, in verse 3, God appears to Moses in a burning bush. And he declares to him, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And the point is that they have all died at this point. And the tense of the verb proves the point Jesus makes. Notice that God did not say in that passage, I was the God. I used to be the God. I remember when I was the God. He says, I am the God, presently, right now. And all of these patriarchs listed in that verse, they are not dead, but they are alive. On on the other side of this life, they are alive. They're, They're as real there as our pulse is here. And Jesus points to that and says that you don't understand the Bible and the power of God, that there is indeed life after death. And there will indeed be a resurrection. 
In John chapter 5, verse 28, Jesus declares, An hour is coming in which all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and will come forth. Those who did good, good deeds to a resurrection of life. Those who committed the evil deeds to a resurrection of judgment. God will resurrect every person. You definitely will be resurrected again one day. And every person is going to go either to heaven or to hell. It's not complex. People who believe in God live like it. That's what Jesus is saying in that verse I read. People who don't are evident to God as well. Life, to use that word from the passage, life belongs to all who believe upon Jesus. Who turn to him believing that he died for their sins, they have life. And they will resurrect to life. And God will usher them in as children eternally. Jesus provides a clear understanding of Scripture. And I want to ask you this morning, do you know your Bible? Do you have a clear understanding of Scripture? Do you read it? Do you desire to read it? Last April, uh, the American Bible Society published a survey The year prior, about half of Americans say they read their Bible on their own maybe three to four times a year. This year in the survey, 39% say the same thing. It's down 11 points. About 10% of Americans say they read their Bible daily. For us, there are some of us here this morning who ought to by now be on meat and no longer milk. To read to you from Hebrews chapter 5, verse 12, for though by this time you ought to be teachers, you have need again for someone to teach you the elementary principles of the oracles of God. And you have come to need milk and not solid food. For everyone who partakes only of milk is not accustomed to the word of righteousness, for he is an infant. But solid food is for the mature who because of practice have their senses trained to discern good and evil. Christian, our religion has enough spiritual toddlers. We need spiritual warriors. Boy, our spouses need it. They need us to be those people. Our children need it. Our co-workers need it. Our church needs it. Bellingham needs it. Look, if you have a Bible and you can read, you can do this. Here's what you can do. I'm just going to give you a couple of very practical tips on how to get involved in reading your Bible. There's something for each of us here, I believe. First, you can pray. Ask God for desire. Lord, give me a desire for your word. Help me to love it, to find it interesting. Help me to find time in my day for your word. That's a prayer that God would answer. Would he not? Secondly, make time. Find a time that works well for your schedule doesn't need to be a lot of time, but but start small. Begin somewhere. And that is my third point, start small. You know, if you're just getting started, don't try to run a marathon right away. If you're trying to, to get into hiking, don't start with Mount Baker. But just read perhaps one, one chapter a day. And begin with John, not Revelation. And fourthly, get accountable. 
because I think when I speak like this this morning, all of us have, or some of us may have tried this and failed. This could be one of those carousel moments, like give it, you know, give it a go again, but I know how it was last time. Look, if you've tried this before and failed, you can do it. Not the failure part, the doing it and reading it part. You, you can completely do this. And I think it's very helpful in these times to get someone who can hold us accountable in a good way. Someone who would cheer us on and, and ask us about our reading and encourage us when we fail. Accountability helps. Having a friend involved helps. And lastly, if you're having success, if you're already involved in this process, take it to the next step. If you're already reading a chapter a day, read two. Perhaps it's time to start praying a psalm, or maybe it's time to memorize shorter verses. Don't settle and don't plateau. Keep going. Keep growing into heartier portions of meat, to borrow that passage. Wherever you are, eat solid food by reading God's Word. Well, in our passage this morning, our Lord's going to be tested yet one more time. And this last question is a question about priority. In verse 34, when the Pharisees heard that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered themselves together. One of them, a lawyer, asked Jesus a question, testing him. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. Second is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. Well, the Pharisees now dispatch what we might call the special forces of their organization. They dispatch a lawyer. Now, when you hear lawyer, you need to understand that lawyer back then is different than the lawyers today. Um, they weren't appearing in court. They weren't prosecuting or defending someone. Um, some Bible versions will also use the word scribe interchangeably. The point is that these were professional scholars. Uh, these were people who were very skilled in the law. They, they were great at interpreting the Bible. They were very good at understanding the Old Testament even all of those extra rules that they added to the Bible, they, they knew all of those. And their question, again, it seems like a good one, even a fair one, the question at the time was stirring great debate. The Mosaic Law details 613 individual commandments. And 365 were negative, 248 were positive. And the debate, going around, was over which was most important. Uh, at the time, they called some of those commandments as heavier and some of them as lighter. Which one's the most important? What would Jesus say? How will he summarize it? And if you know about our Lord, <laughs> based on his track record, this could very well be a checkmate. You heard his Sermon on the Mount. He has some very radical views on the law. You heard it said, but I say to you, you're familiar with the Old Testament, but here's what it actually means. 
Jesus taught us there that anger is murder, that lust spawns adultery. In fact, he says things like, I came to fulfill the law. Surely this question will trap him. How does he reply? Our third point, love God and love others. Love God and love others. Love God with all of who you are. Commandment number one. And by the way, if we can do this, this is going to put a lot of those other commandments in their right place. If you and I are loving God with all of who we are, the other commandments will follow. Now, you're going to inevitably encounter people who, quote, love God. You need to know that in our society, both of those words from that statement have been redefined. Love and God can both be redefined based on who you encounter. We always want to keep coming back to the Bible to understand what love is. We want to come back to the Bible to understand who God is. We never want to allow the culture or the opinions or the experts, they don't get last say, the Bible does. Jesus says it quite simply, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. There's a lot more we could say about this, but I want to go on to Jesus' second reply. He gives them more than what they ask for. He'll go even further in verse 39. Here's a second commandment. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And once again, we would go to the Bible to define our terms. It's very interesting. I, I read somewhere that, that love your neighbor, it's never defined in the New Testament, but there are tons of illustrations. This is what it looks like without telling us this is what it is. Again, to our second point, another good reason to read your Bible. But you're going to discover another sharp contrast, just like we did in our definition of love God. Love your neighbor means something to the Bible that it does not mean to the culture. In the world, love is about you. In the Bible, love is about God. In the world, you're supposed to follow your feelings. In the Bible, follow Christ's example. In the world, love is subjective. You can make this up as you go along. In the Bible, love is objective. God defines love and his definition remains firm. And in the world, love is often conditional, but in the Bible, it's committed. Love God and love others. This is foundational to our faith. I think there's such a, a, a strong and compelling case that Paul makes for this. This must be a mainstay of the Christian faith. And Paul writes of this in 1 Corinthians 13. Consider this. He says, if you speak with the tongues of men and of angels, that is to say, if you know many languages and you are very knowledgeable and can speak to people on their level and in their place, but he says, if you do not have love, you become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. You know how annoying and disruptive cymbals can be? Paul goes on, if you have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge and you have all faith so as to remove mountains, if you can do all kinds of cool things, if God has gifted you immensely, if you do not have love, you are nothing. And if you give all your possessions to feed the poor, and if you surrender your body to be burned, friends, if you serve your heart out, 
if you make the greatest sacrifices possible in the name of the kingdom, if your body is burned for Jesus, if you do not have love, Paul says, it profits you nothing. There are some things in this world that make no sense. The word wise fool, friendly fire, silent screen. I'd say chief among those is a loveless Christian. There's just no way for that to work when we explore the Bible. So I want to ask you, are you loving people this morning? Are you loving God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind? Are you loving God with all of your being? And do you love your neighbor just as you love yourself? Jesus calls you and I to love, and he has loved us. That's going to become quite evident in these final chapters of Matthew. You'll see the great love that Christ has for you. But for today, I'd say we reached the climax of our text. We seen the Lord answer all of these questions successfully. But I want to close with just one final question. This is a different exchange. It's a different question, a different answer, a different reaction. Now Jesus quizzes the quizzers. Verse 41, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question. What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They said to him, the son of David. He said to them, then how does David in the spirit call him Lord? Saying, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies beneath your feet. If David then calls him Lord, how is he his son? No one was able to answer him a word, nor did anyone dare from that day to ask him another question. Our Lord gets right to the point. We've seen his enemies unite against him. They've been asking him about Caesar and about marriage and about commandments, all that is important, but Christ has given us great answers in this account. And he asks them, what do you think about the Christ? The Messiah, the one promised from the Old Testament to come and deliver. They get a four-word reply. Two words in Greek, the son of David, and that's it. The rest is all Jesus. He's going to draw this round of jeopardy to a close. David, King David, wrote Psalm 110. Jesus quotes that in in verse 1. In that verse, the Lord, think about the Lord in all caps, the Lord is the Hebrew word Yahweh. The Lord says to my Lord, capital L, lowercase o-r-d, Adonai, that's the Hebrew word. Both of these words refer to divinity. Sometimes they appear together in the Old Testament. In English, you've read this, the Lord God, Yahweh, Adonai. But Psalm 110, verse 1, again, let's put our words in as a replacement. Yahweh says to my Adonai, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. In other words, the Christ or the Messiah is the son of David. King David refers to his son as a god, Adonai. Now let me tell you, fathers do not call their sons Lord. 
So the son of David, he had to be more than a mere man. And the Pharisees didn't believe this. They're looking for some political deliverer to come and deliver them from the Roman Empire. Some kind of human rescuer. And here's the best part about the logic of Jesus, is that the fatal stroke for his antagonists, it's already been laid. Three days ago, when Jesus rode into Jerusalem, the crowds cheered, Hosanna to the son of David. These religious leaders, they're catching up on old news. The crowds already acknowledged that Jesus is the son of David. By the way, the son of David is the Christ. No one was able to answer him a word, nor did anyone dare that day to ask him another question. This morning, most of us depart here in full agreement with Jesus. He is the son of David. He is the Christ. He is fully God and fully man. You and I believe upon his gospel. We've given our lives to follow him. And we, like the religious people of this account, we, unlike the religious people of this account, we need to ask Jesus a question. If he is who he says he is, then what should I do? Lord, what should I do? I think that's the proper question of any subject to a ruling king. And based on the answers Jesus gave us today, we know we should give ourselves to God. We want to read God's Word and love God loving others. But Jesus also knows you exactly as you are. And He knows you where you are in life. And He knows of all your successes and all of your challenges. And this is a question I believe that we can ask Him. Yes, we ask a question like they did, but unlike them, we really want to know Jesus' answer. Lord, what would you have me do? And this is a question I invite you to ask your Lord this morning. Lord, what should I do? I believe you're the Christ. I believe you're the King. I want to serve you. I want to follow you. What would you have me do? I believe that this ultimately is a question that your Lord will happily answer for you. And he will do it with the same kind of love the same kind of grace, and the same kind of profound wisdom that he showed here this morning. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, um, we are amazed and we are astonished at your wisdom, at your skill in, in answering your opponents. And we are also um, humbled and thankful that you would let us be your friend, that you would set your love upon us and invite us into a saving relationship. Um, I pray for us this morning that we would respond to that. Lord, you would show us what we should do. It's a very open-ended question and We know we have the Bible and we have your word, but we also understand that there are perhaps things that you have for our lives that that are very particular and very precise. And you've wired your people in very uh, amazing and intricate ways. Lord, I pray that you would draw that question from us and that you would answer it for us. I pray, Father, that you would bless your people as they seek you through your Son, that you would give them grace. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.